Let's pray. Father, we have come to worship. We know you as a living and loving God who has continually reached out, not only to us, but those who have gone before us. And you forgive us when we don't pay attention. You forgive us when we don't quite understand. You continue in your patience to work with us until we do. So Father, this is another day along the way in which we have come to you, hoping that it's another opportunity for us not only to meet with you, but to be shaped by you. So may your hand be upon us, may your spirit enliven us, and may our fellowship encourage us. And in these things we come, beseeching you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, take your Bibles and or whatever um, these days and turn to Psalm 147. We're going to read the first six verses. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God, for he is gracious and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the downtrodden he casts the wicked to the ground. I would like for you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. While you're doing that, I want to greet a group of Greenville University students who've come in. Thank you. Wave your hand so folks can know who you are. All right. Be sure and say hi to them. And, and while we're doing that, wave to each other. We're going to, and wave to the folks at home. We're going to give you a chance to do that. Say hi. Those folks at home are feeling a bit isolated, so they need to see your smiling face, or at least your smiling eyes above your mask. Okay, it is true that every leader needs to have people around her or him who are willing to speak the hard truth. This week, my wife came up to me and she said, you stink at giving announcements. You should find somebody else to do it. And mysteriously, three days later, Rick Park volunteers to do announcements. Now they claim they did not collude. And I suspect that's going to be their story no matter what. But if you're with me and you believe in conspiracy theories... Here's another one for you. All right, you've had time to get to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Beginning with verse 12. Since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. And if you want to know what that hope is, you're going to have to read on your own. It's, it's in the verses ahead about, that we've just not read. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face, 
to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside, but their minds were hardened indeed to this very day. When they hear the reading of the old covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Hear that again. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, if you haven't already done this, I want to encourage you to set aside a week, 10 days, and take your Bible, a pencil, a pen, and a piece of paper. And I want you to read through First and Second Corinthians. Addresses all the issues that Paul deals with. You might be surprised what will be on your list. I'm not going to give you a comprehensive list, but Paul deals with things like menus and shopping for food. You never thought that would be. That's what's in Corinthians. He deals with proper etiquette for receiving friends. He deals with settling lawsuits, even in heathen courts. Paul was a reasonable sociologist, and he dealt with dealing with the status of members in the congregation. He talked about establishing and maintaining correct ethics. He dealt with paganism and its influence. And he dealt with critical problems in the church, such as worship and faith and hope. Paul probably arrived in Corinth about A.D. 50, some quarter of a century after Jesus' death and resurrection. He spent about 18 months there. There are places that he went, we don't have a great deal of information, but we do know he was about three years in Ephesus and 18 months in Corinth. And we don't, we, so we think Corinth was his second longest tenure where he stayed and worked with a group of people. And then he moved on. And it was about a two, excuse me, a two year period of 54, 55, that he's believed to have written four books, or I'm sorry, four letters to the Corinthians. Um, two of them are either completely lost or uh, fragments of one may be merged into 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was probably a, a unique letter. Every convert that Paul made when he was there initially came from the synagogue. They were Jews who were willing to be open to, to his message about Jesus, or they were God-fearers, Gentiles, who had converted from paganism to following uh, Yahweh and Judaism, who now listened and heard the good news 
as preached by Paul. In addition, Paul surrounded himself with a team. Priscilla and Aquila, Silas and Timothy labored in this church to try to grow them up in the gospel. And sometime later, other Christian leaders such as Peter and Apollos most likely visited and shared some time there. The description I'm giving you isn't complete, but it introduces Corinth, and you need to know more about them because it's a church like modern churches. It has issues like ours, and they face them like issues, and Brian's testimony couldn't have been a greater advertisement not only for our church and what life together here can be, but also for studying uh, the letters of Paul, but particularly his letters to Corinth. Our text comes from a part of Paul's correspondence to this church, and it's probably after he's written the letter that we don't know what was in it. It's probably lost. He makes reference to it, hints at writing this hard letter in which he was extremely critical. And in fact, by the time he had sent it, it's like, you know, you drop a letter in the mailbox. And you, you guys still remember mailboxes and dropping letters in them? Or maybe it's like hitting the send button. Let me update myself. It's like hitting the send button and you go, I want that back. Paul tried to chase down, um, I think it was Silas, and, and, and get the letter back. It was too harsh. Had an unexpected result. The people repented. But Paul arrived, and then the trouble bubbled up again. And Paul's legitimacy as an apostle, the, 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 his right to conduct ministry amongst these people was called into question. There was a significant element of the church who rejected him as not only a church leader, but a Christian leader. There was a part of the congregation who had taken his teaching on freedom that we're talking about this morning and, and taken it and blown it into a, a license so in which they could ignore the law and even ignore good morals. Some were saying that marriage was no longer necessary. Others, there were women in the church raising all kinds of questions. And finally, he had to deal with glossolalia, the angelic tongue, and how its practice in the congregation had been divisive. So here in chapter 3, Paul makes his stand. He says to these people in this letter, you are my witnesses. Just as Brian said, you are the testimony that God is in this place. The life that you live, the life that you share, is the testimony that God is at work in this place. You are the testimony that the church is competent. You are the testimony that a new covenant reigns. A covenant of freedom. A covenant of hope. A covenant of love. And then not only have you seized it, but it's available to others. 
You are that testimony. You are that witness. Now you need to understand when Paul said this, he said the old covenant was a covenant of death. Really? How can this Pharisee turned preacher be the only theologian and and preacher who makes this theological statement during the era of the primi- of the primitive church calling the first covenant a covenant of death well it's a bit hyper hyperbolic paul was a jew and from the middle east after all and he has that affinity with my relatives from arkansas ozarks the ability to kind of speak in exaggerated terms. Any of you got family like that? Oh, you liars. Okay, thank you. The covenant of death. And how could he say that? Because he's reflecting on it based upon his experience of life in Jesus. After meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road, he began And it says he went into the wilderness and he spent time reflecting upon what he had learned and what he was experiencing and how to bring those things together. And he found that what, while the law was um, an adequate custodian before Christ, while the law could lay out and give a, a, a tangible framework for a relationship with God, both what it should be and what it shouldn't be. The law could not give life. It could only point to life. It was a custodian for those who came before the the ministry of Jesus. And Paul came to realize that it wasn't until a person heard the gospel and understood that they could only have access to this gospel when they realized, when they realized that they did not have the resources to bring themselves into life, that their resources had been exhausted and that the law was not capable of delivering this and establishing the freedom that only faith in Christ could bring to them. This is the freedom. It isn't freedom from the law. It isn't freedom from what the law says about being related to God because that is constant. It's freedom from trying to find life where it can't be found. Paul declares in Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, that since creation, God has been declaring himself to anyone who would pay attention. That the creation declares the glory of God. But that humanity has perverted that revelation because of the condition of sin. He asserts the same thing for the revelation of God through the law later in in the first part of Romans. And that it has been perverted to serve religious rather than godly ends. In chapter 328, hear him. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works 
prescribed by the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do, then, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. If you have turned your life to Jesus Christ, you have experienced the life of the Spirit, the life that en enlivens you, just as breath en enlivens a newborn child. The child is alive in the womb, but needs that breath after birth. That is the Spirit of God in our experiences. But then Paul does this thing in Romans where he contrasts the, um, the conditions under which we live. He speaks of Adam, he speaks of two men, Adam and Christ. And he asserts that in, under Adam, death was brought into the world because of sin. And that because of one sin, the rebellion of Adam and Eve, generations, generations have been condemned. And then he says, because of Jesus. Generations, multiple sins can be forgiven. Life can be restored, relationship with God can be renewed because of one act. That on the one hand, you have Adam, on the other hand, you have Jesus, and they both are addressing the same people, us. We are sinners. Maybe you didn't hear me. We are sinners. Sin brings death. We are dead to God and we are dead to ourselves until we realize the only hope we have for life is the new birth that God gives us through Jesus Christ. And in that new birth, we get that breath of spirit. Where the spirit is, there is life. You have it. And I'm not talking about that you have to have a jump up and down. You don't have to have the glossolalia. It's not forbidden, but you don't have to have it. The, the sign that the Spirit is alive in you is that you have a connection and a life with Christ. You have a sense of forgiveness and a sense of purpose that weren't there before. So what does he say? By the free gift, excuse me, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Speaking of the gift from Christ. This is in Romans 5. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace and the free gift of God and the grace of the one man, Jesus, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. 
for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. The law can do nothing but expose sin, not generate life. In Romans 7, 13, did what is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin working death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Maybe you do this frequently. I hope not neurotically. But each of us from time to time must need to consider the way we are conducting our lives. We need to consider the ways in which we act towards others. And we need to consider how important life with God is to us. In other words, as we read in our text, there's a veil. Life without Christ is veiled. Some of us have the habit of thinking about what has happened to us and what we do and learning from it. That's important, but it's not the same thing. What Paul is talking about is looking at what we do and learning we can't do anything about it. Learning that the only hope we have is something contrary to our very human nature and particularly the spirit of this age to throw ourselves utterly and completely upon the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. At the end of the text, Paul says life in the spirit is like looking in the image of God in a mirror. Only right now, I want you to see that mirror. Have any of you seen those advertisements for those mirrors that, that you, we, will lead you through exercise? Those things are from the devil. They cost money and they separate us. It's not like wearing masks isn't bad enough. People are going to sell us stuff to keep us in our bedroom. I mean, half of you, the only place you connect with other people is at work and in the gym. You don't even eat dinner with your family. So now if they're getting you out of the gym, we're lost because you're out of work. As well. well, maybe not out of work, but you're away from work. So... We've got to get you back together. So this is not that mirror. This is your regular, ordinary, everyday mirror. When you go walk up to it and you look to see if there's something in your teeth, or you brush your hair, or you fix your makeup. And what is, whose face is looking back at you? Whose face? You don't know? You haven't re when you, Who looked at a mirror this morning? Whose face looked back at you? Hers? 
You're fortunate. <laughs> Whose face looked back at you? Our own. Paul shifts that image just a bit, and he says it's like looking at God in the mirror. But I want you to recognize how that image gets shifted for us. Because as new Christians, we look at that face in the mirror, and it is us. And Paul's analogy is, is that by grace upon grace, from one experience of grace to another, the image changes. And I want you to, to imagine yourself looking in that mirror now. Whose image do you see? If you've been a follower of Jesus for any time, that image should start to morph. You should be able to see where those characteristics of Christ are coming to replace your own. And if that is not happening, then for goodness sakes, pay attention and try to figure out why. It is one of our children when, when he turned three, had a vocabulary of, an, an, a working vocabulary, an expressive vocabulary of 30 words. That ain't right. We became concerned. We didn't ignore it. We recognized that there were s signals there that some things had to be attended to, and Brenda and I did something about it. If we hadn't, you would think we were bad parents, right? Somebody say amen. amen. Thank you very much. We would have been bad parents. If you are inattentive to your own spiritual development and you do not see the image of Christ coming clearer and clearer in your mirror, then you need to do something about it. And that can be done because you're not alone. Because in the new birth, the Spirit of Christ is there. If you're ignoring that presence, stop it. In prayer, ask that the Spirit continue and renew with you for the kind of spiritual renewal that will get you on track to become more like Christ. Because that's our job. That's our life. The life of the church that Brian was talking about at the beginning can only be shared when we do that. Carol, it's good to see you this morning. She's a longtime member. She could give testimony herself that the life of the church is like that when Christians become like Christ and love each other and love the world. The freedom that Paul is talking about is not a freedom to do any sin whatsoever we want. And there is a way that you can read about grace and make that application. But that is not the freedom he's saying. He is saying we are free to finally live the life with God that the law points us to. And if you don't want that, why are you here? If you don't want that, why do you have a Bible in your house or on your phone?
There's no one left to impress. It's time for us to continue or to renew our seriousness with Christ and walk the walk of faith. So this morning, as we close, I want you, in this moment when we pause, to process the transformation that is left to be done in your life. To process the transformation that is necessary for that image to become clear not only to you but to others that Jesus lives through us. Let's take a moment before we begin the music and before I dismiss us. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. For examination, confession, and commitment.